We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. You've heard AM, you've heard FM. Now, tune into DM Radio, the world's longest-running show about data. Each week, host Eric Cavanaugh interviews the brightest minds in the world of information management. Want to be on a show? Send an email to info at dmradio.biz. Now, here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. gentlemen hello and welcome back once again to the longest running show in the world about data it's called dm radio yours truly eric Cavanaugh here very excited for another show we're going to talk about a pretty big topic folks we're going to talk about the cloud what is the key to the cloud a single pane of glass that's what we'll talk about we've got nong lee from okira and titus Kurik from canonical on the line titus calling all the way in from poland so he's working late I'm sure it's not the first time he's worked late in his career, but we're going to talk about how with discipline and technologies, companies can manage cloud and really leverage the power of cloud because cloud is the new center of gravity. First and foremost, I think that uh, on-prem data centers are not going away anytime soon. There's going to be a very long tail to on-prem data centers, but the cloud is clearly the center of gravity. The cloud is where everyone's attention is focused on the dev side. We're trying to create solutions that are cloud native these days, meaning you can pull it out of one cloud, put it into another cloud. That's the ideal scenario. It's not that easy to do uh, unless you get it just right. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about things like security, but really just being able to manage and understand and provision resources as you need to, to leverage the power of cloud. So let's dive right in. I'll bring Nong Lee in first from Okira. Nong, tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing to facilitate the management of cloud as a, through a single pane of glass. Awesome. And hello, everybody. It's, it's great, great to be here. Uh, so I'm Nong. I'm one of the, the founders and, and CTO of Okira. Uh, we've been in business about six years ago, and our heritage is in uh, a lot of the Hadoop infrastructure from a decade ago and, and sort of the evolution since. Our focus is around data security and data governance and being able to do policy management at scale for large enterprises, right? I think um, people, you know, large and small organizations of different sizes and industries increasingly care about how to control access to data and making sure that PII is redacted and anonymized and all of those kind of things. And our platform is designed to be able to do that um, very effectively. Uh, obviously, yes, totally agree with you. Cloud is the sort of where all the attention is and where new investments are. And certainly most of our customers are asking for help on how, how do we help them solve, you know, these kind of data security problems uh, as they modernize their infrastructure in the cloud. Yeah, and, and uh, Okira has such fascinating technology. I'll kind of explain how I understand it works and correct me if I'm wrong. <clears throat> but Okira is trying to provide for what we might call responsible analytics. And what I mean by that is if you're a data science team, if you're a business analyst, and you're trying to wrap your head around a particular topic, a particular domain. What do you want to do? You're going to be doing queries, and you're going to do queries of various systems, databases, for example, relational databases, obviously data lakes sometimes. 
Well, to manage access for solutions like that, traditionally you had to manage it at the database level, for example, or possibly at the at the consumption layer, meaning you have to log in, give your credentials. But when you think about the sprawl of information sources out there, the the excitement around cloud data warehousing, for example, with big companies like uh, Snowflake changing the game. Of course, Amazon has its own redshift. When you think about the complexity, it's pretty quick that you realize there's no way you're going to be able to manage that environment. You need dynamic policy enforcement where you can put in place policies that say someone with this level of seniority who is in this particular department uh, and is working on these projects should have access to any data that is related to that particular person's work. Right, which is a, which is dynamic in nature, meaning it's not just a simple rules-based system, and it's not to where you're just saying, okay, these 847 people have access to that database. I mean, that's a recipe for absolute disaster from just a basic management perspective. Is that about right, Nong? Yeah, you, you really nailed it. So, yeah, absolutely. So that minimizing complexity and being able to make these decisions much more dynam- dynamically than we have in the past is sort of mm-hmm. core to our technology, right? It's that, uh, look, it should be automatic that, you know, a user joins a team, uh, they automatically should be able to see the data that that team is entitled to without a DBA or anybody having to, you know, reconfigure things and, and so on and so forth, right? You brought up kind of the 847 users, but on the flip side, that's traditionally been hard is, and then we've hard-coded exactly which columns and which tables and which data sets, you know, he or she can access. And then of course, you know, as things are moving faster, as enterprises adopt the cloud, that data ends up in many, many more places or like similar content ends up in many, many places. So you're really getting hurt when you have to sort of hard code and do this big change management step just to get users access to data. Yeah, and that's that's the term, right? Hard coded. It reminds me of scripting, right? In the old days, in the early days of data management, and this still happens today, right? There are these arcs of innovation that span years in different technologies. But uh, you think about uh, how this has been done over over many years. You would do custom code, little scripts to pull data from here and send it over there, little ETL scripts that you would write. Well, that works fine in the beginning, but once the environment scales, that doesn't work fine at all, especially if the person who wrote the script leaves and now you don't even know who wrote it, where it is, what it does, what it did before. I mean, it's just a complete nightmare for someone coming into that organization green. And then you add in something like the great resignation where all these people are leaving their old jobs and with them goes all that head knowledge. So those kinds of things, I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with a DBA for, I think, uh, uh, a government agency in Texas like 20 years ago, right? And this girl was joking with me. She goes, oh, yeah, I put everything in uh, in the database and, uh, and, and store procedures, and that way they can never fire me. I mean, she came right out and said that, like, I can't be fired because they don't know what I've done. And yeah, that's she's not the only person to do that, but what a clarion call to get clarity of policy and and manage this whole operation in a completely different way, right, Nong? Yeah, absolutely. And and we see that a lot, right? We have uh, sort of our customers will have built up policies over probably a decade, right, with different rules, different people. And it, the, you know, sort of our thesis is policy complexity scales exponentially, right? If you have twice as many rules in your system to think about, it's wow. way more than twice as hard to, to be able to deal with it. And you can imagine sort of the buildup um, over time. So again, kind of the core tenets of what we do is 
has dramatically shrinked that, right? We're not talking about, you know, half as many, we're talking about, you know, 10% as much or, or 1% as much, right? 100x reduction. Uh, and we really think that's kind of the, the platform you need to build on. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think in the context of sort of the cloud and, and what we see in enterprises, I think what everybody sees is the sort of heartbeat of technology adoption has just gone way up, right? The cloud mm-hmm. makes it easy for you to spin up new infrastructure. Uh, it makes it easy for you to try new services and products. Uh, and if you compare that to maybe even just 10 years ago where you have, you know, data center provisioning and hardware buying cycles, now it's just completely different, right? That's crazy. Because, yeah, because the whole thing takes less time. Uh, it's now pretty painful if you spend three to six months provisioning data because now that's the long pull by a lot. Whereas before, maybe if you had two-year infrastructure life cycles, three months doesn't feel so bad. But right now, this is really, really important. And that's what, what's driving people to, to look at things like this. And you know what? That's a great point. And what you're reminding me about is the evolution of DevOps and then data ops, right? So data ops learned a whole lot from the DevOps space. And just to explain to our audience, developer operations, basically, where developers started working directly with the operations people to solve problems. A lot of times in the front end, like on a website, but also on the back end and procurement or, or sourcing or whatever the case may be, you had developers just working directly with the business. Now, that's, it was very interesting because before that, you had this real divide between the business on one side and the IT people on the other. And there weren't too many people in the business world who understood enough about the IT stuff to, to reasonably and effectively manage those operations. And so you had the IT people trying as best they could. And I'm not saying that you know, they were, were not doing what they could do, but they were trying, but still it's very difficult. Well, now you have DevOps. And I think what happened is it took off so fast. They started getting such good work done, but then it's a question of, governance and knowing what had been done and documenting what had been done and being able to explain to an auditor or even to an executive that kind of went out the window for a while and the same thing happened and that's why i think we had data ops come along to solve for that problem it's like okay like who's managing the data make sure we have an environment where we can see that there's a whole workflow around this we can get the lineage we can get all the governance that we want and i think that's sort of part and parcel to getting us where we are today which to your point is amazing that you can just spin up all these resources in the cloud, but unless you have data ops, unless you have some governance structure, you can get great stuff done, but you, you're you're running the risk of just running afoul of policies everywhere you go, right, Nong? Yeah, absolutely. And it's just so incredible to see how much faster we can move today than, than again, just even, say, 10 years ago. But you're right. You know, I, I think usually... You know, when we think about our, our business, um, you know, we've always fundamentally wanted to balance utility, right? People being able to get access data to do their job quickly, not just being a, a sort of something that slows you down, and then security and responsibility, right? And we think the right tooling lets, lets you do both. I think in your go fast, um, then maybe we're going, you know, uh, we've got to have some more controls is, you know, seatbelts don't don't slow you down, right? They let you drive faster on average. That's and right. That's very much uh, sort of how, how we think about it. Yeah, I love that analogy too. Seatbelts don't slow you down. They protect you. And one really cool thing about the cloud is that, uh, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this. We were talking before the show about uh, service-oriented architecture and open source technology and how the confluence of those two practices really revolutionized enterprise software development. I mean, absolutely revolutionized how things get done. And that's a big deal. And it's led to a lot of innovation, right? But um I'm curious to, to know your thoughts on the fact that 
one nice thing about the cloud is that a lot of the best practices for software development have just been baked into it. And what I mean by that is who logged in when, who touched what system when, all that stuff is just baked into the solution itself. So a lot of the metadata that we used to have to manually try to create or build solutions for in the on-prem world, it's all just baked into the cloud and you benefit from that right out of the box. What, what do you think about that now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the cloud sort of inherently gives you shared building blocks, right? So for audit or for user management, those kind of things. And then the mode it's deployed, right? I.e. services that you can talk to easily bring a tremendous amount of sort of baseline consistent functionality. That is what everybody wants, right? It gives you that, you know, single pane of glass on multiple dimensions, whether it's logging, metrics, so on and so forth. And sort of the cloud technologies enable us to to all adopt that easily, right? I think, you know, if it was like package and fully on-prem and, you know, you're talking about, you know, libraries and configurations and all those kind of things, it's hard to get consistency. But if we all, you know, use the building blocks that work really well, uh, typically provided by the cloud provider or, you know, very big uh, vendors that are establishing standards there, it makes life a lot a lot easier, right? We, we can sort of focus on the, the business logic and, and sort of value add just across the board. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I'll throw this question over to Titus in the next segment too, but I'll throw it to you, Nong, and just kind of get your take on it because I'm I'm coming up the learning curve myself to wrap my head around what specifically it means when someone talks to you and says, we want to make this cloud native, our application cloud native. How do you describe what that means from your perspective? What is cloud native and maybe what isn't cloud native? Interesting. Um, so I think for for you to be cloud native, you need to uh, sort of be designed for elasticity and scale. And the application needs to uh, really be able to sort of externalize very clearly and explicitly uh, sort of things that would prevent it from being able to move around, right? So you really understand your dependencies, where state is stored, so on and so forth. So you get that portability and and, and so on and, and so forth. So I think that is probably the biggest thing I, I think about when I do that. I think if you yeah. get it right, then you can obviously move it around on different infrastructure, um, different cloud providers, uh, so on and, and so forth. Yeah, and, and one thing that gets me excited too when I think about uh, the single pane of glass, we should explain that too. What, what we're talking about with that metaphor, folks, is having some place where you can go to to see what's happening in this cloud environment or to see what's happening across cloud environments. And that's going to be a real big issue and a real big winner for companies to do it right going forward because you're going to be able to see, hey, this kind of workload runs great in AWS. This kind of workload runs better in Azure. The price performance is better in in Google Cloud Platform, for example. As we get more of those data points and can wrap our heads further around what this all really costs, that's a huge win for organizations, it seems to me, because you're going to be able to have a much finer grain of control over your costs and over your processes, your workflows. And that's what business is all about, right? What do you think about that, Dom? Yeah, I think that absolutely agree. I mean, you know, the way we think about our product uh, is uh, we can create policies that are the same policy that can span different cloud environments at the same time, right? You could write one policy that controls Redshift and BigQuery all at the same time. So we certainly subscribe uh, to to that thesis, right? Um, We increasingly see clients um, 
adopt a multi-cloud approach for exactly that, right? They really like this data processing tool uh, or this team really does and you know they should be able to get that flexibility to go use it. And then of course there are a whole bunch of challenges that come with that, but I think you know a lot of people are, are trying to solve those, but I, I think they're valuable to solve. Yeah, and that's a really good point too. We should mention, I, I know this myself, people like the tools that they like. Trying to rip and replace is never really a good strategy. I mean, unless it's a terrible tool that nobody likes, and that doesn't happen too often. People get acclimated to their tools. And one of the downsides I've seen of cloud, and I think we'll, we'll slowly and incrementally move away from this, but one of the downsides of cloud is that they tend to be one-size-fits-all solutions. And so that tends to restrict the agility and I think it's why you start, you're starting to see so much work around airflow, for example, and stitching together these processes with the bare services provided. Now we're kind of getting somewhere, but you know, the, the cloud is a sort of one size fits all model, at least to a certain extent. Um, but what do you think about that now? Yeah. So I, I think for sure, getting people who are using a productive tool to switch, probably not, not a winning, winning plan, right. <laughs> uh, for, for many reasons, but I don't think it even makes sense, right. People should be able to use, best of breed tools. I think your point about uh, sort of airflow and integration and those kind of things, I see a lot of activity there and a lot of need, right? We do, again, have infrastructure that's being built very quickly, great amount of heterogeneity, and getting all those plumbing right between the different things, I think is increasingly valuable, right? We see that in the data ops, DevOps side of things. We see that in observability problems, right? Being able to see things as they uh, funnel all the way through. So yeah, I, I think that's certainly, I, I see way more increasing activity to solve those kind of problems sort of across the board. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, observability, that's one of my favorite new disciplines. It's so interesting how much we can see now and understand where data is flowing through the enterprise, where it's going, when it's not flowing, for example. There are terms like dark data that are getting thrown around. And uh, these all help. They're all signals, basically, to help the teams understand what's working, what's not working. Why is my report not correct? Well, maybe it's because there's some feed that broke somewhere. And, and the faster you can get to solve those problems, the better off you're going to be. And the more data you have, the faster you can solve the problems. Don't touch that dial, folks. We'll be right back. You're listening to DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Cavanaugh. All right, folks, welcome back once again to DM Radio. We're talking all things cloud today with my guests. I've got Nong Lee from Okira and Titus Kurek from Canonical on the line, dialing in from Poland or quarter Polish. Happy to have another fellow Pole on the show today. And uh, Titus knows a lot about open source technologies, and we've talked about uh, on many occasions how open source has absolutely revolutionized enterprise computing, the design of applications, the production of, of applications, the management. I mean, open source is everywhere. It's amazing. I, and, you know, when I had my moment, my big aha open source moment is when I was on a plane flying somewhere, and as we're landing, we're just sitting there on the tarmac, and uh, the someone in the in the cockpit was doing, or an IT person was kind of doing a refresh of all the movie screens that you have. And I saw that little Linux, little uh, penguin sitting there and all the codes flying by. I'm like, look at that. This, Linux, this system runs on Linux. It's open source. 
So uh, we have a company called Canonical. That's who Titus is with. And they are the purveyors of Ubuntu, which is one of the most popular uh, open source operating systems. And with that, Titus, tell us a bit about yourself and how you can help companies get that single pane of glass for cloud. Sure. Uh, so Titus Kurek here. Uh, thank you very much for inviting uh, us to this podcast. Uh, so exactly as you said, uh, I believe uh, most of people know us from Ubuntu. Uh, so even if they haven't heard about uh, Canonical, I'm pretty sure they heard about Ubuntu since it uh, continues to be the most popular Linux distribution all over the world. Uh, but uh, our focus is far beyond Ubuntu itself because uh, uh, we are fully present in the open source space and uh, we provide uh, commercial services for even big enterprises uh, who are building their infrastructure and running their application uh, on Ubuntu. Uh, we provide uh, professional services, commercial support, uh, or even fully managed services for both infrastructure and applications. Uh, as exactly as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I think uh, you know uh, cloud computing uh, market uh, is is a very complex market, and it, when it comes to multi-cloud, like uh, there are so many layers uh, that uh, need to be managed properly so that uh, a need for a single pane of glass is so much important. Uh, this is why we make sure that uh, Ubuntu runs with no friction across all of those layers of the multi-cloud. Mm. Yeah, that, that's really important stuff. And I'd love for you to get into Kubernetes a little bit and to explain it for our audience. And I'll give my explanation and then uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. But Kubernetes is an absolutely brilliant project. It's an open source project that came out of Google. And uh, I think what happened is they saw this all coming. Someone was smart enough to see the trajectory of computing in the cloud in particular, but for the enterprise and beyond, quite frankly. And what Kubernetes does, it's a it's this fascinating um, technology that, that, that essentially achieves distributed compute. So it launches containers inside that container is some code to go do something. And so when a system or an application needs something done, Kubernetes launches the container, it does its job, and then it just goes away. So they're very ephemeral. So it's a very clever way to distribute compute for very complex environments and for scalability, right? Because if you look at the cloud, and I remember going all the way back to like the late 1990s, the lot so much focus was on being able to scale up because back then you just had to buy, you had to provision servers for the maximum throughput. And then like, for example, Black Friday or, you know, some holiday season or something when you're going to get a huge spike in traffic, you used to have to provision for that all the time. So then you got a whole bunch of boxes sitting around on, you know, August 5th when no one is buying anything and you're paying for all that hardware. Well, that's not a tenable situation. But over the years, and Kubernetes is a big part of this, we can now scale out dramatically upon need and then scale back. But tell us from your perspective, is that about right or, or tell us a bit about Kubernetes? I think you are totally right. So uh, Kubernetes has definitely, uh, you know, modernized, like uh, it, 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 has, it has changed the way dramatically of how applications get deployed nowadays. Uh, so I, I think the concept of uh, scaling out uh, came in with uh, cloud computing at all, like uh, in, in general, starting with even with uh, AWS EC2, right? Uh, but uh, then with 
quickly realized that uh, with traditional virtual machines, uh, this approach uh, is a little bit uh, ineffective, right? Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that, uh, and, and getting back to your point on cloud native, uh, so that you know uh, applications can now get deployed and uh, they can uh, scale out to uh, answer the needs of you know. Uh, increased uh, traffic or increased load uh, doing all these kind of things with traditional virtual machines not really effective so kubernetes uh, brought uh, this concept of uh, containerization and and uh, container orchestration uh, meaning that uh, applications can now be deployed uh, using much more lightweight uh, underlying you know method of, 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 of uh, running workloads in a cloud. Uh, that was uh, super effective and, and uh, worked super well with the scale-up approach uh, that was first introduced by the cloud computing concepts, right? Uh, and if you think about uh, Kubernetes itself, actually, it's another example of a single pane of glass because uh, it, it uh, quickly gives you an overview of uh, all of your containers uh, that, are that are running uh, uh, under this uh, particular infrastructure, uh, meaning that it can be used to, you know, spin up new applications, uh, scale them out uh, as the need uh, for that increases, uh, scale them back, decommission, uh, and, and monitor the current situation and the current status. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big deal. Uh, and it, it, it just fascinates me how that engine works. And so the best, someone finally described it to me and I kind of got it better than I had before. She said, think of it as um, little system processes, just the little things that your operating system will do when you're launching an application or using an application. The, the app is reaching into the operating system to get little bits and pieces of functionality to do what it needs to do, what you ask it to do. And what Kubernetes did is it, it basically created an engine for dynamically provisioning those little bits of processes that are needed by the application to get things done. And so in doing that, it has a much lighter weight footprint and uh, is easier on the operating system as well, it seems to me. So it allows you to scale out in a very durable and efficient way without overtaxing the OS at any given time, right? Because a lot of times when, when systems are down or systems crash, you know, it's either because you know, the CPU overheated or, you know, something else really bad happened in the environment. But if you have a distributed fabric of compute underneath, then one CPU crashing isn't that big of a problem anymore. You avoid that so-called single point of failure. What do you think about that, Titus? I think you're absolutely right. So uh, if, if you have a look at how traditional virtualization technologies uh, used to work, uh, the uh, approach was to basically emulate uh, the entire operating system, including uh, the underlying hardware that was now represented in the form of a virtual hardware resources uh, that would cover the kernel uh, of the operating system that was basically uh, present uh, inside of uh, traditional virtual machines as well. And that would cover all applications uh, that would be running on top of the operating system. Uh, so the Kubernetes and the containerization technologies uh, entirely changed that, meaning that uh, they, they got rid of all of the virtual hardware layer and uh, 
as, as a result of that, uh, there was need for a kernel to be present uh, in, in the workload anymore, meaning that uh, all you actually run inside of containers are just the applications. Uh, the first iteration of Linux containers uh, that that's called LexD was allowing to run multiple processes inside of a single container, basically meaning that uh, you, you could think of the workload uh, as a kind of a separated environment under the operating system uh, mm -hmm. with a set of applications running there. While Kubernetes went one step ahead, uh, basically launching a single process inside of a container, meaning that applications can be provisioned really effectively, very quickly, mm -hmm. and they can scale out almost immediately. That's so interesting. And, you know, what I think about where virtualization came from, and it was designed to optimize the resource of the box, right? So you would virtualize access to the box. And because what you'd have is, you know, compute would be very low most of the day, and then it would spike up when things are done. And with virtualization, the idea was to really make that a much more efficient process overall. So you're trying to optimize the value of your existing infrastructure. And then what Kubernetes did is it just did the same thing in a different way, right? And so to your point, to just throw a bunch of VMs up into the cloud, yeah, it can work that way. But when push comes to shove, it's always about performance, right? That's the key is you, you have to perform at speed, at scale. You have to perform as well as, as you need to in order to get the business, to keep the business. And in a web-enabled world, people don't want to wait because they know that this site goes real fast. And if your site doesn't go real fast, they're not going to spend much time on your site. And if the functionality isn't good, you're going to lose that business. You know, I think that uh, Amazon, for example, has done a fantastic job of creating this bulletproof infrastructure. I will say that in the, in, and I've used some of these technologies myself for Amazon for like selling products and things. And, you know, it's not a very intuitive environment. I mean, you better read about, read a lot of instructions and pay close attention to what goes where, but they are giving you access to this incredibly robust infrastructure that is borderline bulletproof, right? What do you think about all that? Correct. So, uh, indeed, uh, virtualization, as you said, uh, was uh, kind of invented to uh, help organizations bypass the scalability limitations of the underlying infrastructure, right? Uh, if you think about the server uh, and its uh, compute network and storage resources, they are limited, right? Uh, you can uh, always buy another server that has more CPUs and, and has uh, you know more RAM installed in there or, or more storage. But at the end of the day, like you, you, you're limited by the hardware constraints. Uh, so meaning that, uh, you know, uh, if you want to have uh, isolated workloads uh, running on a single server, uh, the approach was to partition those underlying resources and allocate like, right. you know, uh, a, a chunks of them. Uh, to virtual machines, that was again kind of causing some scalability limitations because mm. you couldn't partition, you know, uh, uh, that you 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 can you can partition into some chunks but not uh, into hundreds of them, for example, mm -hmm. right? Uh, with the containerization uh, layer running on top, uh, those resources are actually shared rather than partitioned, uh, meaning that uh, the resources can be used much more effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, 
so that was uh, that was one of the advantages uh, of, of uh, containerization and what Kubernetes brought to the market as well. Yeah, right. No, it's amazing stuff. And, you know, we mentioned before about uh, wanting to be able to leverage these different environments. And I think what's happening is a lot of organizations, they're using, let's say, Workday, and they've, they've uh, used it in a particular environment. They're using some other technology that's already there in Azure. They're using a technology that's in GCP. So being able to to stitch together processes across that environment, that's where things get a little bit tricky, I would tend to think. But just for my edification, would Kubernetes run efficiently in an environment like that? Like, could you deploy it on-prem and then have it spinning out um, containers to different cloud environments, or is that too uh, too frail? This is really this is where it uh, becomes really interesting because uh, this is what uh, most of the organizations nowadays are trying to do. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're no longer living in a world where you know uh, people are running their workloads uh, in a single cloud. Uh, most of our customers, for example, actually use uh, multiple cloud providers and multiple substrates at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is coming from various things. So either they went to public clouds first, and then you know over time they realized that the cost continued to grow, so they started migrating back to a non-prem infrastructure, or they're running uh, their workloads uh, in uh, various public cloud providers because uh, this helps them to negotiate better prices, or simply particular features or workloads are not supported if they run it uh, on a single cloud. Uh, so this hybrid multi-cloud environment and hybrid multi-cloud setup with uh, some workloads running on-prem and some running in public clouds uh, is is really emerging. And uh, we see more and more organizations actually uh, going with this kind of a setup. Even though it poses uh, those challenges again, like how are you going to manage this distributed environment and and those various types of substrate, right? That's right. But I like the point you made about how Kubernetes itself is like its own single pane of glass because you can see all the different containers that are running. That's just fascinating because now it's almost like watching the vehicles in a train yard or the cars in a train yard move around. Those are the containers. They contain little bits of functionality to get stuff done. And the key is to enable that scale out, that immediate scale out that will not have any detrimental impact or at least nothing significant on your business. It's very cool stuff. Don't touch that dial, folks. We'll be right back. We're talking on DM Radio. Welcome back to DM Radio. Here's your host, Eric Kavanaugh. All right, folks, back here on DM Radio, talking with Nong Lee of Okira and Titus Kurek of Canonical, both really cool companies doing interesting stuff. And I wanted to tell a quick story about um, innovation in the cloud. I was just chatting with our guests uh, in the break there. I remember in 2005, I was rolling out a, a webinar program for uh, the Data Warehousing Institute, and we were looking at pricing and different webinar providers. And the cost structure back then for one particular vendor was $2,000 to provision one one-hour webinar. That, that's not the content. That's not you know the marketing. No, no, no. That's just the actual vehicle, the technology to host the webinar. So the video cam stuff, capturing the audio, allowing people to register two thousand dollars for one one hour webinar well now i could do a 
thousand one-hour webinars. I can't pull it off in a week, but I could do a thousand if I could pull it off. In if I could do webinars all day, all night in Zoom for like three hundred bucks for the whole month. So talk about it, just a shocking disparity. And that is what the cloud provides. If you really know what you're trying to build, think about it. If you know what you're trying to build and you're you're working in one of these cloud environments, for example, you can build a better mousetrap that will work faster, more efficiently. The costs come down. And that kind of issue, when you bring the cost down of a critical business process, what, the, what does that mean? It means you can invest that money elsewhere. You can invest that money in people. You can invest that money in R&D, whatever the case may be. It's just amazing. But I'll, I'll throw it over to Nong Lee to comment on that. I view Zoom as a real poster child of what is possible when you do it right. And by the way, I'll point out what someone told me, that Zoom passed Cisco in market cap a while ago. Cisco's a hardware company. They have routers and all kinds of technology. And they had WebEx which was a video conferencing tool. So how did Zoom, who just does a video conferencing tool, pass Cisco? And the answer is they have the vision and they know what they're doing in the cloud. Noam, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think what companies are able to accomplish in the cloud is, is just incredible. We have these sort of things that are bulletproof building blocks that just make some problems go away, right? If you want durable storage forever, <laughs> that's cheap. It's done, right? This problem problem is solved. And I think we're seeing a lot of emerging technologies that are trying to make sort of the next tier of problems go away, right? You guys were talking about Kubernetes. That's a step function improvement in how to manage and deploy large infrastructure effectively, right? It's just completely changed how easy we can do things. And I think we're going to continue to see this sort of rapid innovation in the next decade, right? Where we build increasingly these kind of common building blocks that just work. Right. Mm-hmm. The cloud provides a bunch of those services. Uh, that's certainly, for example, what we're trying to do in the you know data access and data security space. And it enables companies like Zoom and, and many, many others to sort of focus on their customer and business value and just assume this kind of underlying infrastructure technology just works. And that would be awesome. And I think we're, we're making a lot of progress towards that. Yeah, that's such a good point. And, you know, and to, to that point and to the value of open source in general, Titus, I'll throw this over, over to you. What I love about the open source movement here is that we started with the foundation and the operating system with Linux. Now you got Ubuntu and Fedora and some others out there. But then we climbed the stack. We did data in the Hadoop era. There's cloud. There's a lot of uh, networking technology being worked on in the open source community. And what's so cool is that when the foundation is there, you don't have to go out and rebuild the freaking wheel every time. Because what was happening in all these data centers is that they were all, each of them, rebuilding wheels their own way, which takes time, it takes resources, it takes money, it creates complexity. All these things happen as a result of that. But if we can all agree on the foundational components, then as Nong says, the business can focus their attention on business logic, on doing the specific things they want to do better than their competitors. So it's it's really a classic case where a rising tide lifts all boats. What do you think, Titus? This is so much true. So we see it every day in, in conversations with uh, users of our software and our customers, right? So open source gives you the foundation, as you said, but, but it gives you much more. It gives you uh, whatever you want to build on top of this foundation, right? So starting with things like the operating system, as you said, Linux, the world's most popular operating system used in servers, uh, in data centers, in public clouds, right? Uh, then 
what else do you want to build on top of that? Uh, would that be uh, your private cloud, like OpenStack, or a mm -hmm. data lake uh, based on Hadoop? Uh, all of those technologies are open source. Kubernetes, as we discussed, uh, which is like uh, a new standard for running uh, applications and uh, coordinating them and managing them, uh, is open source as well. And a lot of applications uh, in, in all of those GitHub repositories all over the world uh, are also open source. You can actually build not just the underlying infrastructure, but the entire application portfolio for your business using open source technologies. And you can go even one step further. So if you think about how you're going to manage this stuff and operate this stuff uh, on a daily basis, you know, on day two, once you, you deploy it and you move it into production, there's actually a bunch of tools that allow you to do either configuration management or mm. like this new pattern of Kubernetes operators that allow you to manage, you know, uh, containers uh, running on Kubernetes and do some typical day two operations. They're also open source. So you can actually build, you know, the entire infrastructure and application stack using open source technologies, limiting, <laughs> you know, yeah, saving That's... saving money and, and investing it elsewhere. Well, and it, it's so exciting too. It really is, folks. And because uh, I'll point out something like Kafka, for example, which is now everywhere. There's a company, Confluent, that sits on top of it to sort of manage it and harden it and, and sell it to the enterprise. Kafka was the engine that drove LinkedIn. That's the actual engine of LinkedIn for communicating, sending messages, pub sub type stuff. And here they just open source it. Of course, Facebook was Cassandra, open sourced it. So you see, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's ingrained now in the mindset of developers, of the community, but also corporations to give this stuff back. And then, of course, there are benefits to the company. Now you have an open source community that helps you monitor it and helps you, you know, tie down little loose ends everywhere, dot I's, cross T's, maintenance is not, you don't have to do it all yourself. So there are, it's not just a completely selfless act, but it is remarkably selfless. And it's so cool that we have all these large organizations just committing to, to whoever wants to use it what a fascinating change from the way it used to be where it was closed source, keep your cards close to your vest and be very careful about what you share with people. That's not good for troubleshooting, right, Noam? Yeah, absolutely. And I sort of started my data career at Cloudera, right, where we, you know, I think Hadoop was probably maybe one of the first big examples of data infrastructure that was open source this way. And it's awesome to see the, the trend continue. It's really great. Yeah, and it's it's everywhere. I mean, and uh, Titus, you're over at Canonical, another company dedicated to open source, dedicating. And one of the, my favorite quotes about open source is that bad code goes away. What do you think about that? I, I think there's a lot in that. So uh, with, uh, you know, proprietary software and closed source solutions, uh, you know, uh, the size of the development team uh, that stands behind the software is always limited uh, because of the you know business constraints uh, of, of, of the company that stands behind the software. Mm -hmm. Open source solutions instead, uh, like take Linux kernel as an example, or OpenStack, like uh, which is one of the three most uh, uh, actively developed uh, open source project all over the world. There are thousands of contributors behind those software or tens of thousands, right? And the uh, development process is so rigorous, meaning that, uh, you know, uh, the bad code can be eliminated quickly, as you said, the regressions 
can be eliminated as a part of the CI process. And, uh, you know, bad decisions can actually be even avoided uh, at design time so that they don't pass, you know, the specifications preparation and approval and uh, uh, they, they, they wouldn't even enter the development cycle. Yeah, and th- I mean, this is great stuff because again, and I'll maybe throw this last question over to you. Maybe we'll save it for the podcast bonus segment. But you know, developers want to develop. They want to do stuff. They don't want to be hogtied. They don't want to be slowed down. They don't want everything to change all the time in terms of what the business requirements are, for example. And so developers want to get things done. And we're starting to see, uh, I'm certainly seeing this from the enterprise software companies, a, a great awareness and appreciation for the morale and the needs of the developers. Because if the developers have a hard time using your stuff, they're not going to want to use your stuff. Real quick, just a couple last comments, Nan, go for it. 20 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with, with, with that more, right? We have people who are, it's hard to hire, I think, across the board. There's not enough talent. And if we have them, we got to keep them happy. We got to keep them productive. And I think, you know, a lot of what we discussed is about productivity, right, in, in different different forms. And that's really, really important. That's exactly right, too. Uh, to quote Montgomery Burns from uh, The Simpsons, a happy worker is a busy worker. So, folks, uh, we got a podcast bonus segment coming up next. If you want to be on the show, don't be shy. Send me an email, info at dmradio.biz. We've booked out a whole editorial calendar for the whole year. I'm happy to share that. It's a public document in, uh, in Google Docs. I'm a big fan of Google Docs. And even just the, the change in collaborative abilities that Google Docs brought is absolutely game-changing, wonderful stuff. You've been listening to DM Radio. Folks, back here on DM Radio podcast bonus segment, we've been talking to Nong Lee of Okira. That's O-K-E-R-A. And Titus Kurek from Canonical, just like the word that you look up in the dictionary. And uh, in this topic of, of cloud native and this topic of how you develop modern enterprise apps and, and how you manage these things over time, I'm really fascinated by one of these trends. You'll see, for example, this concept of DevSecOps has come out, right? So you had DevOps. Now they throw second to the middle of that because the idea is security has to be everywhere. You can't just have security on login. You can't just have security on access to data, for example, security gets baked in. And so what you're seeing now are these sort of stacks of code that will interact with each other and you'll have security teams in environments they call DevSecOps, the sec of course means security, who who create these artifacts, these security artifacts, which I just find really fascinating how all this stuff works. But one of the upsides is that you don't get the single point of failure on stuff typically. So the site won't just crash but what will happen is one button on the site doesn't load, for example, or one little bit of functionality doesn't load. So you just reload the page and it all kind of comes back because it's a distributed environment. But I'm curious to, to hear each of you comment on how it changes things. Because I think it changes for the better that you have developers working in their own little environment, basically, in, in, a, in a stack that comes together dynamically. So I can mess around with layer two or layer three, and it's not going to throw the whole thing off. Because it's it's its own isolated area. But Nong, can you comment on your your take on that? Or if I'm wrong about something, what do you think about all that? Yeah, no, I, I think things like that are are incredibly empowering, right? I think one of the things we've learned is um, you've got to be able to split the responsibility of building a new application, running it, maintaining it, so on and so forth, with different folks in the company, right? And having standard ways of expressing that is incredibly powerful. So I think. You know, Docker, for I think, is probably the best example of how that combines the developer experience with 
running the application and, and so on and so forth, giving you that common building block so the two responsibilities can can work without having to um, you know constantly coordinate, right? Kind of the, the system helps you with that. I think for you know DevOps or, or SecOps, we can see a similar thing happen, right? Where you know you know every developer should be security conscious and so on and so forth. But the tooling and sort of what other people are able to help should give you that base substrate. Um, and again, kind of split the responsibilities a little bit so everybody can move move faster. So I think those kind of things we're going to see more and more. Yeah, and I'll bring it out, bring Titus Kudik back in from Canonical. Uh, obviously, you guys are concerned about security all the time. And uh, it's in every part of the stack now, right? It's not just on the front end or on the back end. You have to kind of weave that stuff in. What are your thoughts on this concept of DevSecOps and, and how do organizations embrace that? What do you have to do to make sure you're adhering to the principles of this discipline? Right. So I, I think it's about uh, changing the mindset of uh, developers, actually, right? So if you have a look uh, at, uh, you know, the development processes have evolved over time, you know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, it was all about, you know, making sure so that the software is developed, right? Then it was, it's developed and it's tested. Then it was like, it's developed, it's tested and it's documented, right? When <laughs> DevOps came in, it was more about, you know, like it, it's all of that plus that it can actually be operated effectively. Now with DevSecOps, it actually introduced another layer that developers need to think about so that making sure, you know, it's developed, it's tested, it's documented, it can be operated and it's secure by design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're getting very mature in these environments. And uh, and then, of course, well, one last comment I'll get just uh, from you each. I think this is kind of funny. One of my favorite topics is the shared responsibility model of security in cloud providers, which I interpret to be you are responsible and the cloud provider isn't responsible at all for anything in your environment. But the idea is that the cloud provider will ensure that their environment is not infected or, or compromised, but in your space, it's still a hundred percent your responsibility to make sure there's nothing bad going on inside of there. Nong, is that your understanding as well? Yeah, I, I think um, certainly that there is a quite a bit of responsibility for, for the customer using the cloud environment and, and so on and so forth. I mean, I think what we see is that obviously the cloud providers, their services, they spend a lot of time to make sure they are secure, right? They're hardened. You probably can't attack them. All of those kind of things, really hard. And, and they solve that well for you. Uh, but the challenge often is the controls to get them right can get very, very complex. And I think sort of complexity is the enemy of security, right? You're going to, hmm. it's very hard for you to be able to configure all of the different pieces uh, that, that make you safe. Um, uh, so I think, yeah, that, that kind of shared responsibility, you know, there is a big onus on getting your system sort of configured right and using, using everything correctly. Yeah. And real quick, Titus, I love that line that, uh, that Nong just mentioned that uh, what complexity is the enemy of security. Basically the more complex it becomes, the more, you know, target points you have, the more you have to manage. So, uh, there is a real need to, to focus on simplicity as best you can real quick, Titus, what do you think? Right. I agree with that. Uh, so the more environments you have, uh, the more challenges you're going to face. And uh, when it comes to application management in environments like that, uh, when some workloads are running like uh, on Amazon, some or Google, some in a private cloud, having a single tool that allows you to effectively uh, 
you know, launch workloads in this kind of multi-cloud complicated setup, uh, ensuring security is essential. Yeah. Well, folks, we've been talking to two experts in the field. Big thank you to Nong Lee of Okira and Titus Kudik from Canonical. I'm sure we'll have them back sometime. Like I said, we want to know what you want to know. Send me an email, info at tmradio.biz. This does conclude our show for today. We'll talk to you next time, folks. You have been listening to DM Radio.